<laughs> if you guys will turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 6, and I'll read that for us. And it says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Appreciate you, Paul. Appreciate you. <laughs> good morning, family. Good morning, family. All right. It's good to hear your voices. For those that don't know me, my name is Wayne Penn Jr. I am a pastoral resident here at Riverside Community Church. I'm a part of the Eau Claire Small Group, aka City of Refuge Church. Um, just grateful to be here. John 17 is one of my favorite passages of scripture. Uh, we all know it as a high priestly prayer, and it's, it's just this really fascinating picture of Jesus taking time, you know, out of his busy schedule to, to pray for his disciples and also those of us who would later on believe. And I always like to picture in my head uh, the reaction that the disciples would have once they got to verse 15. You know, because they hear all this other stuff that Jesus is praying, and it's, it's so wonderful, it's so flowery. Father, I thank you that you hear my prayers and, you know, I pray for these, you know, those that you've given me, I've not lost one and I pray that they be one in you. And, and then he gets to verse 15 and he says, but I don't pray that you take them out of the world. Now, if I were in their shoes, I'd be like, hold up, like, Jesus, you, you see what's going on around, around us, right? You see how bad things are, right? You see that we're under Roman oppression, you see the fact that, frankly, some of us don't even like each other. You, you see all of this mess that surrounds us. Why would you pray this nice prayer about us being one in you and leave us in such a messy predicament? Why would you do that? That's kind of how I imagine them reacting to this. And yet, the funny thing is, it was intentional. Because the oneness that we're called to, the unity that we're called to as believers is meant to function and be preserved in a messy situation. Unity in the midst of mess. That's what we're called to as believers. So I hope by the help of the Holy Spirit to really kind of really cement that thought in our minds. So would you pray with me as we go to the throne of grace? Father, I thank you. Once again, for the opportunity to speak your word, to declare your truth, I pray, God, that I would decrease as you increase, that you would prepare our hearts and our minds. God, give me the words to say and how to say them. And Lord, above all things, let us be not just hearers of your word, but also doers of your word. And help us, God, as we strive as a church to be one in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I said, I'm pastoral resident here. I'm really starting to get into the thick of things. I'm feeling it, y'all. <laughs> I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it, you know. Getting more into my work duties, seminary, my first semester's almost done. I'm having to think through papers and final exams. You know, I like to joke with the staff that I'm kind of waist deep in the water now. 
I'm trying not to go in over my head, so I'm more or less trying to, thank you, Cammie, I appreciate that. Um, I'm more or less trying to kind of, you know, maintain this, this sense of balance and not getting overwhelmed and just asking God's help for that. And so I'm in the thick of it. I'm in it. And so even though I'm still the new kid on the block in a lot of ways, I think I've seen enough, I've heard enough, and I've absorbed enough to feel pretty confident about the statements that I'm about to make. Um, I really want to acknowledge where we are as a church. We're tired. Would you all agree with that? We're tired. We really are. And I'm not talking about the kind of tired that sleep fixes. You know, this this isn't fixed with a nap. Some of us, most of us, actually all of us really, if we pulled the room, are tired of COVID. (laughs) A to the men, right? (laughs) We're tired of this. We're, We're tired of masks. We're tired of Zoom. We're tired of safety protocols and feeling reluctant to give hugs. We're tired of it. I am. Some of us are tired of change. You know, why do things keep changing around here? Why small group different? You know, why, why is the structure as a whole different? Why is the hospitality so different? Why is children's discipleship so different? Why is worship so different? Why are these things so complicated? Some of us, if we're honest, are tired of feeling like we're doing all the work while others sit on the sidelines. Some of us are tired of feeling like we're on the sidelines while others do all the work. Pick your poison. Some of us are tired of having to deal with certain people. And I'm not talking outside the church. I'm talking inside the church. Some of us are tired for whatever reason, whether it's a minor disagreement or a major difference of philosophy as far as how a a matter should be handled, a personality clash, an offense that's been unresolved. Whatever it is, some of us are just at odds with each other. And this brings me to my second statement. Church, we're not as united as we think. Now, I don't say this. It's not the presence of conflict that brings me to that statement. I mean, if anything, honestly, I'd be more worried if we didn't have conflict. Because that implies uniformity, not unity. There's a difference, right? So what I'd like to pinpoint, however, is our tendency here at Riverside to assume that conflict will somehow take care of itself. That if we just leave it be, it'll just magically go away. I think this tendency comes from a fundamental fundamental misunderstanding of real biblical unity, of the oneness that we as a church are called to in Jesus. Now, this is not just a Riverside problem. I don't want to give the impression that I'm just picking on our church. By and large, it seems that much of the church, really, tends to believe that the presence of conflict equates to the absence of unity. Because, you know, Christians, you know, we're just supposed to be nice, hunky-dory. We're not supposed to have conflict, right? We're never supposed to disagree. We're never supposed to offend each other. We're never supposed to get on each other's nerves, right? We're just supposed to sing kumbaya. Well, yeah, that's true. But no, God forbid, right? Yeah. Um, This misguided thinking 
this tendency for us to avoid conflict has really led a lot of us as believers to buy into a peace mirage. Y'all know what a mirage is, right? Something that you know you think that you're seeing, but you're not really seeing. Is this biblical? Is this, this superficial unity what we as believers are called to? Should we be satisfied with a peace mirage? I would argue no, and here's why. Because the triune God didn't look at the conflicts between us and him and just leave it to resolve itself. From the fort of foundation of the world, he had made up in his mind to repair, repair the breach. He didn't just leave it to work itself out. God leaned into the conflict, like literally leaned into the conflict, literally came down from heaven, from his throne, got into the thick of things to resolve this conflict. A conflict, ironically, that he didn't initiate. He didn't mess up a sin against us. We messed up a sin against him. And yet he came to redeem those that had wronged him. Ephesians 1 and 7. I don't have any slides, my apologies. But uh, if y'all permit me, we can be a page-turning church this morning. Amen? <laughs> so Ephesians 1 verse 7. If y'all want to turn there real quick. Ephesians 1 verse 7. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We have redemption through his blood, through his blood. Now, as a result of this atoning work of Christ, as it says in Romans 5 and 1, we now have peace with God, peace with God, right? Now, here's the thing about this peace. This peace didn't come about by some nice peace treaty where two parties were sitting across tables, signing papers, having discussions. No, this peace was purchased with blood. It's a bloody peace. Now, I really want this connection between blood, specifically the blood of Jesus, and peace. I want that to really be cemented in our minds. It didn't come about with a peace treaty. It came about with the bloody murder of Jesus. And ironically, this kind of forms a backdrop for Ephesians. You know, I recall actually when Paul was on his way to Jerusalem in Acts 20, where he was talking to the uh, elders of Ephesus, and he told them specifically, look, you all need to pay attention to how you shepherd this flock and fight for the flock because God purchased this and obtained it with his blood. Peace obtained by blood. This peace, this bloody peace, this glorious mess should really define the kind of peace that defines our unity. It's not a nice, clean thing. It's, it's a bloody mess. It's glorious. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing that it's messy. And I believe this is a perfect backdrop for our text here in Ephesians. Now, real quick, I just want to give a simple breakdown of the, the book of Ephesians as a whole. So Francis Folks uh, writes a commentary on Ephesians, and uh, he says, in essence, that Ephesians reads more like a sermon on the eternal purpose of God, which he is fulfilling through his son, Jesus Christ, and working out in and through 
the church. I'll read that again. Ephesians reads more like a sermon on the eternal purpose of God, which he is fulfilling through his son, Jesus Christ, and working out in and through the church. So it's broken up into two halves in general. You have chapters one through three, which sort of reads like a seminary lecture. It's like a seminary lecture that breaks down the doctrine of this great purpose. So I'm, I'm taking covenant theology in seminary. I'm loving the class, I really am. Our professor, at the beginning of each class, he asks us, hey, what's the heart of covenant theology? And the answer is that God desires a people and that his people will be his people and that he will be their God. That's the purpose. The purpose of this atoning work was that we would be his people and he would be our God. So chapter one through three breaks this down doctrinally. Now chapters four through six reads a little differently. Whereas the first half is like a seminary lecture, the second half reads more like an instruction manual. So it's, 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 it's a way to help practically break down and assemble what you have in front of you. That's what instruction manuals do, right? So in other words, Think of it this way. The first half spells out what we've been given and called to. The second half breaks down how and what we do with what we've been given. Y'all following? Awesome, awesome. So, the calling. What are we called to? We're called to sonship. We're called to be adopted into the family of God. If you're still in Ephesians 1, look at verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. We who are in Christ are now in the family of God. We have literally been called into communion with the triune God. That is mind-blowing. That the same God who framed the universe, who, who holds it all together, thinks of us as family. It's crazy. <laughs> and because we're in the family, now as wonderful as it is, and it is wonderful, and it is a truth that we should bathe ourselves in, really. As wonderful as it is, there's some attachments to that truth. I don't want to call it a catch because, you know, God's not deceitful. But there's a manner that we're to walk since we're in the family of God, right? You know, I, I tell Cammie and Corey a lot of times, I mean, they're, they're great kids. I love them. But there's something about, you know, having my name attached to you. There's a certain way that I expect you to behave as a pen, right? All of us kind of have that family name pride to a certain degree. No, you, you act like whatever my last name is. You act like you got sense, right? You don't behave in such a way. If what you're going to be known for is my last name, you need to act like you got my last name, right? <laughs> It's the same with us as a family of God. There's a manner 
in which we're supposed to walk. So because we're God's kids, in Ephesians 4, if you flip there real quick, Paul says in verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And here are the characteristics that should mark us. Verse 2 says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Now, let's not gloss over these characteristics. We hear humility, we hear gentleness, we hear patience all the time. And we're like, oh, we've got a handle on that. Do we? (laughs) Jesus epitomizes those characteristics. We, we not so much. Thank you. We we don't. We don't. Um, Jesus epitomizes humility. What greater example of humility do we have? He says this of himself. Matthew 11 and 29, he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. This is how he describes himself. Now, I'm not the smartest guy, but if anybody has the right to be prideful, I would think it'd be God. Right? That's just a thought. If anybody has a right to boast about himself, brag, hold it over our heads, it'd be God. Okay? There's this quote that I love from this preacher and I, I get excited every time I get the chance to quote it because it makes me sound smart. Um, he says, worship is the only thing that God can't give himself. Because to worship someone is to acknowledge that that person is higher than you. And God can't do that. All right, I didn't sound as smart as I thought. Okay. Um, <laughs> the highest of the highs came and experienced the lowest of the lows, humbled himself and became obedient unto death, as it says in Philippians 2, even the death of the cross. And we who are in Christ are called to walk in that kind of humility. You know, Jesus didn't start from the bottom and, you know, now he's here. He was at the top, always. He had the most to lose. There was no one higher than him, and he came down to our level. And this is the kind of humility that we as believers should walk in. Not this this superficial humility, you know, that, that tempts us to act humble in order to hear or get a pat on the back saying, oh, you're so humble. No, that's not what we're called to. But a humility that really cost us something. Really cost us something. Cost us our lives cost us our comforts, our preferences, our ambitions, our interests. Insert whatever you want into that sentence. It costs you something to be Christ-like humble. Now, he not only epitomizes humility, but he also epitomizes gentleness. I don't want you to get the wrong impression about what it means to be gentle, however. Another word for gentleness uh, in the Greek, as far as how it's translated, is meekness. Now, this gentleness, this meekness is not just about being nice. Francis Folks again says in his commentary, it is closely connected with the spirit of submissiveness seen in Ephesians 5. You know, specifically verses 21, where he begins to break down how we are to relate to each other. You know, family dynamics, husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church, wives submitting to their husbands. 5 and 21 actually talks about us submitting to to each other. 
So that same spirit of submission is really what meekness gets at in the New Testament sense. Another theologian named C.L. Mitten notes that meekness in the New Testament sense is the spirit of one who was so absorbed in seeking some worthy goal for the common good that he or she refuses to be deflected from it by slights, injuries, or insults directed at themselves personally, or indeed by personal considerations of any kind. This kind of meekness is determined. It's tenacious. It will not let personal insult, injury, slights, whatever, deflect it from the common good that it seeks. It's not just about being nice. It's why you see Jesus flipping tables. Not for the sake of being mean. And by the way, please don't use that verse as an excuse to go be mean on social media. Please don't do that. This is just a side note. I see that all the time. Well, Jesus flipped tables so I can go and say anything I want to say on social media. No. He was flipping those tables for the sake of those that couldn't worship as a result of the merchandises in the temple. He was literally doing it on behalf of others. So, yeah, missing with that. Anyway, <laughs> the meekness that Jesus epitomized was tenacious, determined, was not swayed by the wrongs, by the injuries that he suffered. Think about this for a moment. Again, we said that Jesus, highest of the highs, right? No one higher than him can't offer himself worship because no one is higher than him. He stoops down into the dirt, right? I think of creation. He's forming human beings out of the dirt, right? Creating, for lack of a better phrase, dirt bags. <laughs> Y'all stop playing, we in church. Um, he creates these dirt bags, right? And then he comes and lives among the dirt and then allows these same dirt bags to spit on him, to pull his beard, to hit him repeatedly in the face. He, he endured that amount of disrespect from his own creation. Now, does that sound like weakness to you? Him being meek and lowly is not weakness. It's tenacity. I don't care what they do to me. I came to do the will of my Father. Jesus epitomizes patience. This is abundantly evident in Scripture. And Paul in particular, I think, felt this very personally. Because, you know, before Paul, you know, became the greatest missionary that we've ever known, he was a Christian killer. Probably the equivalent of like a Christian terrorist. You mentioned Paul's name, everybody got scared, if you were a believer. Literally going into people's houses, dragging them out, men, women, and children, dragging them to prison, having them executed. This was Paul prior to his conversion. If anybody knows anything about God's patience, it's him. And he mentions this in 1 Timothy 1, 15-16. You don't have to turn there. But he says this to Timothy, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, or the chief. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, 
Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Now take a moment to take a page from Paul's book and ask yourself this question. How patient has God been with you? Think about that. On that note, Paul continues in Ephesians 4, verse 2, in addition to humility and gentleness and patience, he urges us to bear with one another in love. Now, the phrase bearing with is derived from a Greek word, which literally means to hold oneself up against. So if you think in terms of, of, you know, like a, a literal visual aid, imagine somebody here is leaning against me, almost like a trust fall, you know. I'm using my body weight to support his or her body weight. So it's literally me holding myself up against this person. That's the literal sense of the word. The figurative sense of the word is basically putting up with each other. (laughs) To put up with, to bear with, to endure, to forbear, to suffer. Theologian T.K. Abbott says it involves bearing with one another's weaknesses, not ceasing to love one's neighbors or friends because of those faults in them which perhaps offend or displease. We got to put up with each other. Sorry. (laughs) We're family, right? We got to put up with each other. As believers, we're called to put up with each other. Now, Paul adds in love because it can be done in a way that is not loving. We are to bear with one another in love. So what do all these characteristics have in common? Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. Aside from the fact that Jesus epitomizes them all, what do they have in common? What they have in common is the fact that they can't be exercised by ourselves. You can't exercise and demonstrate humility and patience and gentleness and forbearance by yourself. You you need people. You need others in order to really exercise and walk this out. Now, the problem with that is that the others are what make all this so complicated. Because they they think differently, they act differently, they they look different, they have different backgrounds, they have different issues, they have different pain, they have sin. They have all these messy human traits that inevitably, inevitably create conflict. The thing that makes this so complicated is the fact that others are involved. And conflict is going to happen. And this is nothing new. Think about Paul's original audiences for a minute. Okay, different racial ethnic backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different political leanings, different personalities. Their audience is nearly as messy as we are. This is nothing new. And and you might be thinking, okay, Wayne, we we established at the beginning of the sermon that we're tired. (laughs) Bruh, where am I going to find the energy to conjure up this unity that you're talking about? Because I'm tired of people. 
I'm tired of dealing with different difficult personalities, dealing with stuff, you know, that I don't agree with philosophically, that I'm being called or asked to do in the church. I'm tired of this. What, what can I do? I don't have the energy. I don't have the fortitude to conjure up this unity you're talking about. And that's not a bad thing, because the thing is, we're not called to conjure up or create the unity. It's already established. What we're called to do is maintain that unity. Our efforts don't bring about this unity of the Spirit. I don't care how hard you try. You can't create this, this unity. But it does take effort to preserve it. And Paul says we should be eager to do this. Eager to maintain the unity. In verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, the Greek word translated eager means to exert oneself, to endeavor, to give diligence. Well, I'm tired, Wayne. Yeah, no, I know. I get it. I get it. I understand. Why all this exertion? Why this diligence? Why does it take so much energy? Well, aside from the human factor, as I pointed out, the fact that we're all complicated messes, there's a real enemy with real minions who is very diligent at his attempts to sabotage the unity that we have in Christ. So beyond our human frailty, there's a real devil out to do us no good. And if he can put forth effort, then so can we. And Paul kind of touches on this in Ephesians 6, specifically verses 11 and 12. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Don't get it twisted, family. The devil is real. Spiritual warfare is a reality. But victory is already assured. What, wasn't it Jesus? Y'all can correct me if I'm wrong. Wasn't it Jesus that said that the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against my church? Jesus said that, right? Okay. We can be confident in what the triune God has already established and set into motion. One of my favorite Christian rappers, uh, KB, has this line where he says, you know, we don't fight for the W, we fight from the W. W is short for win, by the way, if you didn't know. So what has he established? What has the triune God established here? He's established unity. But another word that I think more accurately depicts what he's established is oneness. It's oneness. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. Paul says, There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, you remember those others that make unity so difficult? Those others 
are actually the one that God uses to make the unity reality. Y'all recall the passage in 1 Corinthians 12 where Paul kind of gives his discourse on the body of Christ, right? We're many members, but one body. Many members, many different members. We're all individuals. We all have our differences. We all have our idiosyncrasies. We have, we have all these different things that complicate the process, but we're still one body. And the foot can't say, well, I'm not a hand, so I'm not needed. The eye can't say to the hand, well, since I'm not you, I don't need to be here. The foot can't say to the knee, I don't need you. We can't discount each other. And we can't discount ourselves. All of us are needed in order for this body to function effectively. Every single one of us. It, it's in the text. Every single one of us is needed. Communion with the Trinity. Again, this is, this is mind-blowing. Communion with the triune God is what we've been called into. And as a body, as I said, we've been given unity under the headship of Jesus. But the unity demonstrated by the Trinity is what we're working towards. You see in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, perfect unity. It is, it is a beautiful picture, them working seamlessly together for this great purpose of calling us to be sons and daughters. Seamless unity. We're not there. We got work to do to maintain the unity that we've inherited. Real unity is not maintained by the absence of conflict. And if y'all, by the way, this next statement, if y'all don't take anything away from this message, please hear this. Real unity is not maintained by the absence of conflicts, but by the presence of God. Real unity is not maintained by the absence of conflict, but by the presence of God. And experiencing this presence requires us to be present with each other and really present with each other. Not phony, because you can be in a room full of people and not be present. But it requires us to be present with each other, bearing with one another in Love. Family, as I wrap up, at the end of the day, we're just going to have to ask ourselves, do we believe that this unity is worth striving to maintain? Do we believe that? Am I willing to walk this out with my brothers and sisters? Am I willing to have hard conversations when it's needed? Am I willing when I've been offended or when I feel I've offended somebody else to go to them? and not think that it's going to work itself out? Am I willing, if I have just this heated disagreement with somebody, if what they did hurt me so bad, am I willing to go to that person speaking the truth in love? Am I willing to take that risk? Now, this, this, this issue that we're dealing with here at Riverside, it's not gonna be fixed with one sermon. So the next couple of weeks, we're going to kind of, you know, continue to walk through this process. But I want to encourage you that this unity is not something that we have to create ourselves. It's already established. And God calls us to work to maintain it. I want to leave you uh, with this verse from Colossians 3, verses 12 to 15. 
That's Colossians 3, verses 12 through 15. Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ, that blood-bought peace, rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you didn't leave us to our own demise, but you reached down and leaned in to the conflict that we had created. And you came and got in the dirt and redeemed us back to you. We are so grateful. And we're grateful for the example that you've set for us and for the unity that we already have in you. We ask you now for your strength, your wisdom, your fortitude, God, your humility, your meekness, your patience to work to maintain the unity that you purchased with your blood. Help us as your church to truly be the body of Christ and to bear with one another in love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.